0: Please.
1: welcome back to the next part of this truth and rhythm episode be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so please share it with friends also become a member by joining truth and rhythm on patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net thank you so much for your interest and support enjoy
2: and the real tragic extension of that to me is when they use uh, pre-recording uh, you know parts on stage you know that's just
0: well, because you can't replicate, replicate that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Beatles were the first to like get off of the road because they w- were starting to make records that you in those days, they didn't have the equipment. Today, you could you could do that. But, you know, I have this thing about uh, the difference between a performance where you're playing for the room, you know, you're you're on a stage and you can feel the heartbeat as the drummer that was always how I felt. It's like I could read the room and, you know, you could feel, you know, if you played this song at this pace and this, you could just kind of feel the pace in the room and count off the next song. But when you're using click tracks, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like a predetermined, that the inanimate object in the room is controlling everything. And it just doesn't make sense to me. And that's why I had an issue as a drummer of just allowing that to happen because I felt like, Uh, The difference was you could perform when you're actually playing for the room and it's like, oh, you know what? This solo feels great. Let's do it another round. But if it's pre-recorded, you can't because it's going to go back to the verse in four bars and you can't tell it to keep playing. So you then wind up doing what I'll call a presentation, right? You're up on stage presenting the music rather than performing it for that audience. The Grateful Dead, perfect example. Every night was different. Right. You got a good night and a bad night with those guys because it was all, uh, you know, sort of uh, back and forth, you know, everything sort of circular feeding. Today, it's like I'll sit here and you present everything to me. You know what I mean? Hopefully nothing breaks. You know, I found that out early when, you know, Steve Winwood and Cindy Lauper, I had done this True Colors album and then I did Back in the High Life and they both asked me to go on the road. I'm sitting there going, I got a piece of electronic equipment. All I saw was ladies and gentlemen, Steve Winwood, the lights go up and there's a power surge and it blows up my drum machine. And it's like, there's no way I'm going to be that guy. There's no way I'm going to do that gig, you know? So, um, you know, that was the early version of it, but it evolved to control is the word I would use. People want to have control over stuff that wants to be kinetic, you know? and you know vocal performance you, you know you beat it up till it's just there was a a thing on youtube called tuning marvin i think it was called or where where they took the vocal from sexual healing right and they played it it like oh, this is fucking great it's fucking marvin gay and then the guy goes well Let's put it into Melodyne. And, and so now all of a sudden you see this thing on the screen and then, you know, the notes that he's singing and there's E, but there's him slightly under it. He says, well, let's tune him up on this note just to get him in tune. And, you know, after about three or four moves, all of a sudden you get into this mode where everything he sang was wrong. Once you start microscoping it, you know, all of a sudden now, now you're in control of Marvin Gaye's vocal. And by the time they were done with it, it was it was like so limp. It was perfect, but it wasn't any good. You know, yeah, it was I mean, really good when it was just natural, and and that happens today on almost everything. You know, so yeah, that's I mean, well, uh, you know, anyway,
2: <laughs> that's like sacrilegious to mess with uh, people like that.
0: You know, but you know they do now. They're doing. Uh, you know, Dolby Atmos mixes of all these old records, you know, they're just pulling stuff out and who, whoever they have doing it is, is doing these mixes. It has nothing to do with the people who made the records, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's changing. That's not really based on the music, you know, in the business, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So.
2: All right, Jimmy, I'm going to cherry pick some of your projects if that's okay. Sure, and man. Just give me like uh, if you would, like a, a memory, something about the experience that resonated with you. Um, okay. You know, what was it like working with uh, Hall Notes?
0: uh it was. That was a, a bit of a mystical experience for me. The first session I did with them was, I had gotten a call um, from like Tommy Matola, you know, who. I guess Bob Clearmountain had recommended me. He called Nile. I was working with Nile. They like working with the hot hands, those guys. And they had this song called Say It Isn't So that uh, they had recorded, and there was this one section from a chorus to the bridge. It was like two bars of blank space. They didn't know what to do with. And apparently they had been spending days. So I got called to come in. It was very, very, you know, unnerving. It was one of the first big you know artist sessions and they were like as hot as could be so it was it was a little unnerving but you know I figured out what it needed and I got it right and then they had me do some overdubs and then the next day I'm in I did this song adult education um it was it was um it was the first of you know these trials by fire things for me with with the pop artists you know I had been making the R&B stuff it was my first you know superstar you know pop record-making hit team of the moment they were just everything they did was number one in fact it was the first number one record i i had you know in the pop world was that one um and and it was the beginning of, of a pretty long relationship with those guys i was friends with t-bone walk who was their bass player who actually i got his first gig was on curtis blows the Breaks. i i brought him in to play bass on that and um So it was an exciting record for me. That was, that was a real breakthrough. I had a lot of epiphanies on that, which are, you know, for another time, maybe, but it was, it was, it was pretty daunting, you know, because I was still having to prove myself, you know, under really, those are the toughest conditions. They were just coming off of, I think, one-on-one or man-eater, you know, it was like, oh, shit. (laughs)
2: Yeah, they were hot. And they're looking
0: at me. It's like, well. So you're going to hook this up. You're going to fix our record for us. You know, it was like, it was daunting. It was, it was daunting that one. But then I worked with them over and over again. And, and um, you know, extraordinary talent. Daryl Hall is, is amazing. John had his, his role in that thing. He was like the glue. You know, it was very interesting to sort of, I think the best part of what I got to do was to see the inner workings of so many cool, seminal artists and, and not just meeting them but actually being involved in their process so that was pretty cool yeah
2: and then Madonna you mentioned already but uh, what was your experience like with her
0: once again intense you know she uh was coming off of her first record and uh, there were multiple things going on Uh, I was working with Nile at the time, you know, so uh, the songs that Chic didn't play on, uh, I did. I did like half of the album, me and Rob Sabino, the keyboard player and Nile. And um, she hadn't made any money yet from her records. She was living in like an apartment with no furniture, but man, she, she knew what she wanted. I mean, she was so focused. I mean, as a one, Thing. She wasn't always very nice, but that was not her M.O. Her M.O. was she had uh, a mission, you know, she had a purpose. And and with Niall, they were going to make this record. She wanted to be an icon. She Everything she became, that record helped her be. The Like a Virgin record helped break her out of being like a dance club artist. But meanwhile, I believe there were people at the record company who thought by bringing Niall in, they were gonna get like a funky dance record. And, you know, they were both hell bent on their mission. They had a concept. And, you know, once again, another learning experience, I would see Niall get on the phone and people going, blah, blah, blah. you know, he'd hold the phone out you could hear the, you know, the phone like bulging, you know, from people yelling. And he would just get off and they would continue to make the record. And, and but she was so clear. I had never been with somebody who was so hell bent on a mission to become everything that you saw her become. And it was that record that was the transition where she finally, you know, got the power. You know, similar thing with Cindy, when I worked on her second record, like almost at the same time. And there, if you remember at that time, they were sort of like rivals on the cover of Time and Newsweek, you know, they were the quirky chick singers that were like happening at that time. And, uh, you know, I was really learning like the the yin and yang of of the pressures of making a follow-up record to your first hit, you know, with them. With Hall and Oates, it was like continuing a streak. But these guys, sophomore jinx, man, you know, that, that like swallows up a lot of people. And of course, there was so many people telling them, you should do this, you should do a follow, you know, son of girls just want to have fun, you know, or you know, son of holiday or whatever the hit was. And, um, you, you know, you just saw how different people responded to that moment. And so that, that was my, my big takeaway was, was just how intense those things are that have nothing to do with the, the music per se, but navigating all the people and, and uh, all the, you know, opinions uh, and still trying to get to your destination. You know, there's kind of more to it than the notes and the chords, I guess.
2: It's a lot of chefs in that kitchen.
0: Oh, man, for sure. But she was deep, man. She was deep. And she deserves everything she got because, you know, she invented whatever that is that she is didn't exist before her. You know, that iconic pop star that translated into everything. So,
2: yeah. And the right at the video age, like you came in right at the perfect time for the Lynn Drum and she came right in the perfect time for MTV, I think.
0: But it was all happening at the same time. It was a very volatile time that early mid eighties was a really wild time. I got to work, you know, with Nile. he was so hot. So I did some Duran Duran records with him. Um, you know, the Madonna record, a Jeff Beck record, a Sheena Easton record. I mean, just so many things, so many different kinds of things, but everybody was going to him for his thing. And, um, I got a lot of my recommendations came from people who asked him hey man you know who's the guy you're using a that's how i hooked up with russ Titleman, you know which was like a big connection for me in my career so
2: well Niall, of course is an incredible rhythm guitar player um what could you tell the people about him as a as a talent and just as a as a guy to work with
0: he's he's so intuitive and he's such a natural um his guitar playing is just an extension of his musicality, which, you know, he is, uh, it's like, it's like his whole being is, is that he's a great writer. He's a great arranger. He did all the string arrangements on those chic records and stuff, you know? Um, and, and, uh, he has a, a real, I mean, I learned a lot from him in the songwriting department. He said, you know what? Every song we ever wrote starts with the chorus, right? Which is not normal these days. It wasn't normal then either. But if you think about all their songs of the good times, you know, just bam, it starts right with the chorus. Uh, oh, freak out, you know, bam, right out of the box. Got a hook. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people use that long intro with the singer, you know, practicing doing warm ups, and then a long verse before they get to a chorus. Nah, he was like, you know, go for it. And also he, he was one of these guys who um, had a, a sense of, of putting music together like a puzzle almost, you know? And, and so his records were very clean. There was not extra stuff anywhere unlike some other people I worked with who just kept doing more and more. I worked with like Jim Steinman, who would be like an extreme to Niall. You know, Niall knew exactly what he wanted. And Jim was just the opposite. So uh, Niall's just a deep cat. He's he's passionate. He does a million things all at once. And he, you know, he doesn't skimp on anything. You know, he was, uh, uh, and it didn't seem like work. That was the thing. You know, there are some people who just make it seem like a, you know, casual while you're doing something really not so casual, you know, that's a gift, you know, and he, he has that special guy. But oh, there was man. a lot of talent in those days, man. And it was like everybody, you know, feeding off of trying to be better than somebody else. And and that kind of energy wasn't today. It's more like trying to replicate stuff I find than it is trying to invent stuff, you know? So
2: what uh, what Peter Gabriel tracks were you involved with?
0: I met Peter once again through Nile. We did a song for this movie Gremlins mm-hmm. called Out Out, and uh, you know it was one of those <laughs> where you know they all loved the idea that I could sort of make the drum machine stand on its head, and so there were you know it happened on the Jeff Beck record too where there was stuff. If I could have them back, I would take them back you know, where it was more flashy shit than there was substance. Um, but with Peter, you know, he was into layering stuff. And I really learned how he operated. Anyway, there was there's, uh, a couple of sounds that I had that he really, really liked. And uh, when he was making the Soul album, they were at the power station. And uh, what used to happen there, there were three rooms, two of them studio a studio b and there was a lounge in the middle and you came out of either of those studios there was a a a center area i actually introduced bob dylan to curtis blow in in that lounge they were both coming out of their respective rooms and uh you know so anyway uh was it kevin killen or daniel Lenoir? one of them you know saw me and said hey peter's looking for you he he uh he really loves this kick drum sound that you got on that, that record. He really wants to use it. If you look at the credits on Big Time, which is the song on that record that I'm on. Uh, Stuart Copeland is playing the hi-hat. I'm playing the kick drum. Manu Katché is playing the snare drum. It's like he, he would record all these different people doing the thing and then take elements from all of them and create the composite. You know, there were a handful of people I worked with who actually could do that and pull it off. You know, most people would fail miserably at trying to do stuff like that. But Peter was a genius. And, um, you know, so that stuff. And, you know, he used to come. He came out to, to Long Island. There was this place uh, at uh, New York Tech that was like an animation. Uh, it was like a science place that was working on uh Uh, you know, digital animation back in those days. And that that was, you know, one of the places where he got the ideas for the sledgehammer videos and stuff like that. So uh, I got to know him pretty well. And, uh, you know, you know, once again, in the moment, uh, it's like almost have PTSD with some of these guys when I realized who I was hanging out with, you know, it's like humbling after the fact, because when, when I'm in there doing it, I'm so busy trying to, you know, earn my place in the room that I I don't get to experience it, uh, you know, from that distance. You know, it's it's like with almost all these guys you're asking me about, there was some version of that where, you know, you're there to help them, you know, pull off a magic trick, you know, and, you know, I wasn't there to just hang out. So, you know, anyway i was gonna guess
2: i was gonna guess that track i mean that's another one that you know my dj work i just wore the 12 inch single of that out big big time yeah
0: yeah yeah great record and then because of that i got i wound up working with laurie anderson on some stuff on some really you know esoteric and eclectic stuff that was like you know there's no way i would have gotten involved in that with a pair of sticks you know so i'm grateful for all of that
2: what about shaka khan
0: Well, that was with Russ Titelman, and, uh, you know, she's just great. What can you say? I mean, seminal voice, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time with her because, you know, we would cut the track and then she'd come in and do the vocal later. But there were some sessions where she was around just great when you hear those. It's hard to describe, but when you've been around music for so long, working with average to below average people. And then you hear seminal voices. It's so inspiring, you know? And um, she was one of them. I mean, you know, this was like about two years after I Feel For You and Russ had produced Ain't Nobody. And, um, you know, it wasn't one of her hits, but it was was like, it was so cool to just um, do the work and have that be the instrument that's leading the track you're working on, you know? I didn't really have a whole lot of interaction with her, but, uh, once again, my work looks really much better when somebody like her is singing on top of it, you know?
2: Yeah. she's my all time favorite female. Oh my
0: God. Yeah. The Um, Rufus stuff, the Rufus stuff just like kills me. You know, I I had
2: Andre Fisher on the show. That was a real Mm.
0: pleasure. So,
2: wow. Yeah. Um, it was so right cool. around the same period, though. Uh, she did the background for Steve Winwood on that record, and also
0: right. Well, I was in the video with them. You know, I, I actually it's the only video I was in. I'm playing drums in the video of Higher Love, and uh, you know, that was a crazy record. I spent like three weeks with Steve in his apartment, putting the the, the basic core elements of that record together and that's another one you're sitting there in a room with a guy and you know even under his breath it, you know you're right next to Steve Winwood singing it's him it's that guy it's like believe me I, that's not what i was used to you know but at that point i was getting you know Daryl Hall Winwood then later on Michael McDonald i did a lot of blue eyed soul guys and man there's something when you hear that in the same room that you're working in It's hard to describe, it's hard to describe. But if you got into this because you love music, it's mystical to be around that stuff. And, you know, I'm so grateful to have gotten the chance to like do my work with him. He also, he, this is a guy who knew like how to do everything. You know, he had most of this stuff figured out. And and one of the things that happened was that he had lost the programs that he had done for all his demos. So I had to replicate so much stuff. I had to like redo things, you know, from scratch that were like, impo- you know, just like little detail-y things, you know, but it was him. It was him. I got to work with Jagger, same thing, in a room with Mick Jagger singing. Are you kidding? You know, it's, uh, I learned a lot with these characters, man, you know, about what the difference is between somebody who's great and somebody who's not. You know, the great ones, they like, I'll just tell you really briefly, I did this song, Ruthless People. It was uh, Daryl Hall, Dave Stewart. Yeah, so he did the theme song. And <clears throat> I'm in the control room. Once again, I'm starting out by doing drum beats and I don't know the song. So I, I, he was in the control room and I said, do you think you could hum me the melody of the chorus? Right, because I didn't know. I was just trying to get the beat right. And so he comes up to me, and this is, you know, it was a big moment to me. He started singing it like he was on stage at an arena. You know, if anybody could have afforded to like sing it in a head voice, or whispering, or a falsetto, it would have been him. But he sang his ass off, and and you know, it was like he didn't know any other way to do it. These guys don't go halfway ever. He's never going to not give you a hundred percent because it's the only way he knows. Most singers I know, oh, I'll sing it, you know, just sing it quietly because I have a gig tomorrow night. I don't want to blow my voice out. It's like, no, but then I'm gonna get the wrong impression of how it goes. There was no way I was gonna get the wrong impression. He was strutting around, man. It was like, wow, of all the people I knew who could have gotten away with just whispering it in my ear, it was him. But he didn't, you know, and that was a real big tell. Daryl Hall, the same thing, man. These guys don't know how to go halfway. You know, it was real interesting because I've worked with a lot of lazy people on my way up, you know, and then you work with the guys who are winning and you go, oh, you know, so always go full throttle. That that was the takeaway for me. Never.
2: Yeah. and A lot of people think they're just gifted, you know, and it comes easy. But I mean, like you're saying, most of them work their asses off.
0: You ever see these videos of Jagger working out? I mean, you know, like lately. I mean he's an athlete.
2: He's pushing Eddie and look at the guy.
0: It's astounding. It's astounding, but he works at it. You know, yeah, you start with the gift, but you know the you know what I did learn was like innate talent is a head start. You know, people who work hard win. The the, the innate talent you could be and there are many people I'm sure, you know, you've seen along the way, this guy's so good, I don't understand why he didn't make it, you know. And aside from there are reasons why some people don't, some people just think that their gift is enough. And yeah. it
2: ain't. Yeah, especially <laughs> that in sports also, yeah. That's right. But every That's field right. really, I think it applies to just mm-hmm. life. It's a life lesson mm-hmm. and You're an important kidding. one. And um, yep. it's funny though, you mentioned Ruthless People because I just fairly recently showed it to my son for the first time. And so that song actually went in my head when you said it. If I hadn't watched it recently, I wouldn't remember it, but I do remember it. it mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. yeah I can't sing, so I'm not gonna do that, but uh... well,
0: you and me, you know, you know my <laughs> first band, none of us sang so uh,
2: what about uh, Billy Squire?
0: That was just a weird wreck. I've worked with him a couple of times. um it's, it's like sort of a weird abuse of the technology. He had a band that played on the stroke, you know, play you know the hit. The hits that he had on that that main album that he did Lonely you know Tonight, uh, yeah. oh man you know um so the drummer who's sadly no longer with us Bobby Schnard, played as behind the beat as you could get without being out of time it was just his feel his feel his style was a certain thing and the producer on the record that I got called to work on hated his drummer I'm always going, why does a guy take the gig when he's going to start firing the band? You know, but there was a lot of that that was going on in those days. And um, so what would happen was the guy played the drum track and then they didn't like his feel, but they liked his parts. So I had to copy every beat that he played in the machine and they sampled his sounds. And in those days, each drum had a different device. It was like a box with each kick drum, snare drum, tom-tom, hi-hat. They had like 10 of these $10,000 devices stacked on top of each other. And um, so I programmed the whole record and then you know it was a synth bass and it was all synchronized. And then I did that and then they brought in a live bass player and then it went out again. It was like a real circular thing of people who were trying to control something wanted to be captured it's the best way i could describe it that was a band that just wanted to be captured on a good take right and i got called in to to make the more controlled environment version of it and you know it it was always a rub i mean the record came out okay but i mean i felt like really uncomfortable aside from getting paid which i wasn't uncomfortable about you know aesthetically i knew and as part of those are the part of the things that helped me get to become a producer ultimately. Do you know what I mean? I have these experiences uh, where I would go, I would question what was going on, but it wasn't my job to do that. And somebody says, well, you know what you want to produce, produce. And, uh, you know, it happens to a lot of people. They have a different idea than the guy who's running the show. And that was one of them. That was a record that I, I couldn't even believe the insanity that was going on. And, and Billy's a great guy and, and talented guy. But uh, around the same time, he made the, the career ending video with uh, the Jim Steinman song, you know. Um, so that was like a little rough patch in his world. You know, um, it's weird when you catch these guys in different phases, you know, of, of the pendulum swing i happened to catch him on like the down swing you know and uh but a really good guy you know he, he was a nice guy stayed kind of friendly with him and and did a couple other things with him subsequent but you know he's a rock guy you know in many ways i would go why why do you have me here when you've got your band do you know because i was still a band guy at the end of the day i just you know, I had my reasons for doing what I did, but it was, I could, I could separate the band work from the, the technical record making, you know, and uh, there was a whole world of techno-esque music that was coming because of the electronics, you know what I mean? They were creating their own genres, so, you know, I didn't see it as a competition, I saw it as a, as a, as a bigger palette, you could, you had more to, another color to choose from. But a lot of people just made bad calls and, you know, you get caught up in it.
2: He was kind of an anomaly during that period, you know, in in a more traditional rock, at least initially, sound and uh-huh. approach that was sort of passe for a lot of the 80s. But he got uh-huh. over big with it for a while.
0: Yeah, well, but, he, you know, he was really good in this. Once again, the songs. And, you know, he had a sound, you know, personality. Once again, it comes down to the style and personality. He had a thing that just didn't sound like anyone else, you know, and a couple of songs that you just were killer. You know, timing has a lot to do with success in this business, you know, and uh, the timing on that, you know, his early 80s stuff, that, that album with the stroke and, you know, a couple of those other songs, uh, you know, it was like, what's that? You know, that was the early Power Station records. And and that studio had a sound that was seminal to the era, you know. And he was one of the first guys. Springsteen used it on Hungry Heart, same room. Um, you know, Jim Steinman used it on on Bonnie Tyler. You know, it's just like it's a certain sound that that room had. It was very majestic. And, uh, you know, timing, man, timing. and And the opposite of timing with some of it, you know.
2: You did some stuff with Billy Joel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Phil Ramone um, liked to bring me in to do percussion. Uh, I never programmed. I always played it by hand. I always tapped the pads by, you know, live. Um, So... At that time, I, I got called to do so much stuff. And once again, it was all at the power station. Hey, Jimmy, you know, could you come in here? I got this track, you know, could you see if you, there's something you could put on here? Looking for a shaker part. I don't want to, you know, play a regular shaker. maybe you could put one in from the machine. So I did this song, Modern Woman. I did a couple of like two or three songs on that Greatest Hits album, which were not big hits, but, you know, I did them. I did a couple of things for movies with him. I might've done five or six things with, with Billy, you know, modern woman was maybe the, you know, at that moment, that record, once again, it was, you know, where was he at in his trajectory? He had just had that big series of hits in the early and mid eighties. And it was just kind of settling down into like, you know, whatever place he wound up in. Um, So, yeah, I got to work with him. It was mainly working with Phil you know, who was producing him. I worked on a Julian Lennon record with him. I did a lot of things with him. You know, he, uh, he was an interesting guy. He was, he was just so talented. I, I'm very fortunate. I got to work with so many producers who were all different. They all had a different thing going on, you know? And so Niall had his tight soul R and B thing. And Phil had his, you know, pop, sensibility that that was just really broad and jazz oriented jim steinman who was out of his mind titleman who um you know made beautifully crafted records you know like unbelievably well put together recordings and, and you know all different ways of getting solutions to problems you know what i mean and i'd be in the middle of all of it it was it was an amazing you know people would pay to, to get in those rooms, working with Brian Wilson. I mean, I don't know who you were you know, looking to get information on when you were asking about artists I work with, but there was some that were just astounding to be in the room with.
2: Yeah, I had Brian Wilson highlighted too, yeah Okay. For sure, I mean, you know.
0: <laughs> that was with his Man, doctor genius, was there, right? that everything, Everything that that whole crazy time, if you're familiar with, you know, his his scene with Dr. Landy, you know, his 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 doctor who got him out of, you know, the uh, the sandbox or wherever he was like not doing anything for many years. He, he got him working, but it was like it was a really manipulative scene. And it was like the cast of characters, Brian's assistant, he thought was his assistant. He was working for the doctor. He was reporting on, you know, we were being spied on. You need to put another quarter in that meter or something. So anyway, Brian was a deep cat. He was, he was extreme. He was medicated, you know, but he was Brian and even fractional Brian was a complete genius. And so we are getting to make tracks going through the process of making a record with Brian Wilson for me was like, are you kidding me? You know, I got to, you know, I did this song love and mercy. I did a bunch of songs, but that was like the most seminal one that came out of it. And I got to play all this percussion. It was just like making one of those old Phil Spector kind of records, you know, uh, with the guy, with him, you know, and uh, it was astounding, but it was a fucked up situation because the doctor and his people and, uh, they were really trying to keep him off guard and and you know, I got to see it up really close and it was like really uncomfortable. But the guy was it's that guy. <laughs> it's that guy. And uh, you know, what an experience to do that, to be, you know, I spent a month in the studio doing that stuff, and it was like, Are you kidding? This is wow. insane, you know, from where I started and, and you know, my whole cycle. You know, this was all, you know, the 70s thing was only like seven years before that. I had only been programming for five or six years. And so much happened when I made that switch over, you know, just everything, you know, my career like really, you know, took off then. And all these people, I got to work with rapid succession.
2: Yeah, just so the viewers and listeners know, I mean, Steve Winwood, you also were involved in the role with it. Um, Another huge hit. Um, yep and mm-hmm. um, I have um, a lot of people on here. I'm not going to do <laughs> them all, but uh, so impressive, Jimmy. Uh, you mentioned uh, Michael Brecker before, and someone else yeah. I highlighted uh, in sort of a jazz vein was George Benson.
0: Hmm. Uh, you know, George uh, was doing. There was this producer I knew who was who was like making these middle of the road. Southern pop, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. He's working with guys like O.C. Smith, the Little Green Apples guy and stuff. And, you know, the George Benson that he was working with was more the this masquerade guy, more the singing guy. But I did wind up at George's house in New Jersey, working with him. You know, once again, this one-on-one scenario, my... um the best anecdote I have with George, we went out for sushi and I had never had sushi before, you know, and so I was like a bit of a newbie. So they asked, everybody's ordering. And I thought a piece of sushi, you know, I thought one of the pieces on a roll was, you know, I'll have one spicy tuna. So I, I you know, I guess there are six slices in a roll, but I thought each one, would. So I'll have like 10 spicy tunas anyway the bottom line was i ordered all this stuff and they brought out like this boat you know filled with stuff for me i totally misordered and george knew it and he just let me do it he thought it was the funniest fucking thing you know he wound up taking it all home with him but uh uh he was a great guy and uh i didn't get to you know work with him in the guitar playing mode so much when i worked with him but, um, you know, but he's also a great singer, but, you know, seminally speaking, he's playing and singing, you know, this stuff was, was a slightly different moment in time. It's like in the early nineties, I'm gonna say. And, and it was like kind of post his Warner Brothers time, you know, where he was making all these great records with La Puma and, and stuff. Um, but, you know, it was him, it was him, you know, <laughs> special. These are unique people, man, you know, to get to know them, just, you know, but him, I didn't have as much of a musical environment with just, just because of the nature of the record that they were making. But I got called in on all kinds of stuff, man, you know, so.
2: Yeah. um, One of the curiosities I saw in here was kingdom come.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, When I said to you, I could do, I could do (laughs) anything with a drum machine. He, uh, this guy was, was wild. You know, he was, he was a hardcore German rocker guy. Uh, and he was on the outs with his record company. It was like a lot of politics. He had a drummer who was hovering and like really angry that I was programming this shit he thought he should have been doing it but you know once again you know I lost a lot of gigs in my day you know and that's just the way it goes (laughs) you know what I mean it's just like sometimes you win sometimes you lose I I got called in on all kinds of Joan Jett records and stuff like that to do stuff and that we're all banned and and um but this guy had a really methodical feel that he wanted and and the uh the incessance of a drum machine doing it was what he was looking for and you know i could pretty well do anything it's actually some of my better programming i did was was for that it was some really hardcore rock stuff you know it was like really aggressive and the guy who, who produced it was Ga- guy gary lyons who did you know early foreigner records he was he was a pretty cool guy unto himself um you know, so I got to work with great engineers. We made great sounds, but this was like a weird record because there was just like this underpinning uh, uh, going on, just like all these personality clashes that I would I'd kind of walked in on. But uh, you'd have to hear the record. I'm really kind of proud of what I pulled off on that because it was an idiom that um, I had never really worked in per se. You know, that's like real heavy, yeah, rock stuff. It seemed like I an did outlier, work with. That's why. Yeah, yes. Sisters of Mercy. I did something with them. They were another, you know, like a, a goth group from England, but I did that with Steinman and they just wanted big and more, bigger and bigger and louder and louder. And, you know, but this was just like just hardcore, you know, sort of metal stuff. So
2: trying try in a way to make a, a programming version of like a John Bonham or something like that. Or...
0: Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, but the, the music those guys were making was, uh, geez, the the German stuff, there was a little craft work in it. There was a little metal, you know what I mean? It was like a hodgepodge in those days of what he was going for. Um, It sounded like real drums. It really did. It sounded like a drummer. I mean, the, the kind of programming I did in those days was to try and emulate what a drummer would do. The irony was they tried to get drummers to play like a machine and they tried to get the machine to play like a drummer. You know, and you know, and now with hip hop sort of running the show, like we talked, that kind of more uh, electronic drumming for what it is is sort of, you know, the way it goes today. Nobody thinks twice about it. But in those days, they were, you know, the real drummers who didn't cut it were getting replaced by machines. It was essentially it. Then the machine started taking on its own personality, and genres of music were being created with it. You know, so that became you know the the choice. But when I started, it was like this drummer's not any good, or you, you know what I mean. We gotta fix his playing. I mean, I I, I did some repairs. You know, on the Clapton record, I did was I had to replace some live drums for for technical reasons. It was not because the playing was no good, but there was something they didn't like about it. And and it was, you know, it was absolute. You couldn't really change the sounds in those days. It was what it was. So Clapton, I'm I'm being his drummer, you know, with a machine and it's like, you know, a little unnerving to me to be in that position with guys like that you know and George Harrison was there uh that was that was like pretty great week in my life for sure
2: so you met uh Ringo and George did you meet Paul
0: briefly I met Paul about (laughs) about a week after I met Ringo um I met Ringo because my friend Mark Rivera was his music director so I made him bring me to like a sound check I just had to meet the guy and you know we're both the one thing we had in common was that I was a left-handed guy who played drums on a right-handed kit as well and so I have this photo of us where we were talking we're both air drumming about like the 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 conundrum of playing backwards on the kit and like hitting your wrist with the sticks and stuff it was like amazing to me because he was like my hero but so then, I was at the power station about a week later, and I'm talking to uh, my friend Artie Smith, who's like the uh, the drum and guitar tech guru. And I'm standing there talking to him, and I said, "You got to see this! Look at this picture. It's me and you know Ringo." And he says, "Oh, you know that guy behind you might be interested in seeing that." And you know, I was looking down, and I saw there was a guy there, and I turned around and I looked up, and it's McCartney. And it's like, "Are you kidding me?" You know. So I met Paul and uh George in the power station both, but George I got to work with. Paul was just like one of these aha hamana hamana moments, you know. But uh yeah, man, I'm grateful. I got to work and meet all the, you know, not just me, but work with so many people that I, you know, are my heroes, you know, along the way. So
2: that's incredible, Jimmy. Um with with, i i do want to get a sense of you know what you're doing today and uh you know what's going on with your production company and that kind of good stuff
0: well since the era we've been talking about you know i uh you know as as the era you know all good things kind of come to an end especially when you're riding the crest of something and um You know, what happened with the programming is when the equipment started becoming cheaper and cheaper, everybody was able to get their own and, you know, well, you could pay him all this money or I'll do it myself. There's the beginning of the era of everybody does it themselves, even if they're not qualified, you know. Um, So I saw the writing on the wall. I started um, doing remixes. And weirdly enough, a friend of mine who was a, a, a hair cutter guy that I knew, was uh, a music guy, and he was rep- representing this reggae artist named Tony Rebel, and they had this song that needed to be remixed. And he knew I had done the Curtis Blow stuff, and he recommended me. It was for Sony. I did this thing, and they loved it. And I wound up, wound up remixing reggae records, which culminated in doing the Cool Runnings album with uh, Jimmy Cliff. I had, and um so then all of a sudden now I'm a remixer, right? And uh, I wound up remixing some stuff for Michael McDonald that Russ Titleman produced. And um, you know, I just went down this other path and I started writing with some friends and we got a cut with Celine Dion. So I had all these things that would go on where I was able to somehow figure out how to succeed at all of these new little side businesses that I was getting myself into to just survive. And uh, through that, I became a an executive at Atlantic records for a few years, just at the really wrong time for me that it was like a big corporate takeover. Anyway. So after I left there, I started a production company. Uh, I found this kid named Ryan Shaw, who's a soul singer, you know, like an old school soul singer and got him a deal with Sony. Uh, But it was like the tail end of being able to sell records, you know, Uh, the, you know, the streaming world started kicking in and, and, getting a record deal for an artist didn't make sense because they weren't selling records anymore. As a producer, you make your money on sales. You know There are no sales, there's like no money in production. So um, over the last few years, because I was doing my own records, I too was engineering and mixing. So I started getting into mixing and um, mixing and mastering. And that's kind of mainly what I'm doing today. Is, is, you know, people send me their stuff and I mix it for them. You know, I spend a, a little extra time on it because, you know, it's just a little more casual, you know, so, you know, there's so many people who are making okay tracks today. Everybody's recording because you can. The cheapest thing in the world today is studio time. In the old days, you know, you wanted to record a song, you had to come up with the money. Today you want to record, it's in your laptop. It comes with the computer so people start recording before they've even written a song so it's like a different world now and um you know the record business as it stands today is is like really a bit disconnected from whatever it is that I did with those people other than they sample that those records and stuff and every once in a while somebody wants like an authentic thing and stuff like that but you know, by and large, uh, I'm real happy doing this. You know, I always like to find, like I told you, that, that thing that fully engages me so that when I do it, I do it good, you know, or better than good, because I know that just halfway is, is not the way to pull this off. You know, it's it's I'm grateful to have learned that lesson. And it's allowed me to reinvent myself enough times because I found that being the new guy is always the place to be, you know. Once you're, you know, everyone knows who you are. They're always looking around for a new guy, anyway. So when you can figure out a new gig to do, it's like, hey, who did that? Really? Wow, I didn't know he did that. You know, and and it's like it starts over again. So, uh, you know, I'm also not looking. I spilled a lot of blood, you know, on the battlefield, you know, over a certain period of time. You know, so it's like I'm in a different spot than I was, and uh, you know, it's just been it's been great to be able to. You know, go back from where we started here, where I was like a little kid, wanted to be in a band, and pulled off a whole career, you know, without ever put on a suit and tie or, or commute, you know, to to a job, job, you know. Um, you know, I'm grateful for somehow pulling that one off, you know. And that's, that's somehow you never
2: cool. somehow you never moved to Los Angeles.
0: I was that close when right before I bought the drum machine, I was ready to move to L.A. because there was nothing here and uh but new york in the 80s turned out to be a good place to be so you know you just you just never know i try not to second guess myself too much once again you know trusting trusting your instincts even when you're getting beaten up you know so uh, yeah well it's, it's a navigation for i think hey you know, you know i'm not yeah. complaining
2: so uh if somebody is interested in uh you know Maybe you listening to what they're doing or getting your advice or input, you know, what should they do?
0: Well, my website is there. It's Jimmy Bray dot Productions.com. But if you type Jimmy B R A L O W E R dot com, it will go there as well. And there's a contact page on there where you just reach out and I do get back to people. You know, I I know that diamonds in the rough, they come from the places you don't expect. So I always keep my ears open and uh You know, I still love working with new talent. That's one of the things that I'm very good at doing is is helping people navigate their career paths. You know, so I've done consulting as well. I mean, that's a whole other, you know, I'm pretty well done as many things as I could think of doing at any given time. So um, on my website, you know, everything is there. Um, You know, all the things that I offer, just the services and, um, you know, just the history. And, you know, it's all there to be had. So that's the best way to to get a hold of me. I'm here doing it.
2: What would you say are the top two? I'll give you two or three projects that you've been associated with that you feel the most proud of.
0: Hmm. Well, the ones that I really work the most on. uh, damn. True Colors with Cindy, that album was was really a navigation that yielded a, a great working relationship and and uh, it, like an impossible record that we pulled off. You know, so uh, if you've ever been in a theater production where you know it's it's like you you hang out in a world with people, you, they become your family and stuff like that. That was one of those records where the trials and tribulations, you know, and to get a result that paid off, that was really good. Um, The Steve Winwood record, just because on so many levels, he was a hero when I was a kid. The fact that I got to work on a record that was his biggest selling album and stuff like that. And, you know, really, and I got to be in the video. That was another one of those projects where I feel like, you know, that that was magical. Um, And then, Damn, it's a tough one. Um, The Brian record was just so crazy that it it sticks out to me because it was him and and all the navigating we had to do. There was like a lot of extra work to pull it off, you know, but um, but then there's these one off things. I got to work with Al Cooper about 10 years ago. You know, he came over to my house and we did a remake of a song that he'd done with the Blues Project. And he was like a big hero of mine. And so just to have that experience, uh, it's it's really tough to like make that list. Because if uh-huh. I really think about it, they all have something special uh, you, to you, me.
2: You, you succeed in coming up with three, so I'll take it. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, well, there's certainly enough of them.
2: <laughs> is, is there is there one or two, are there one or two people sort of on your bucket list that you would just love to get a chance to work with? Or, or maybe wish you could have worked with them?
0: Uh, you know, I always feel like, you know, it's like be careful what you wish for because sometimes it's not what you think. It, you know, I've learned that too. There are some people that, uh, you know, as people were not nearly as cool as I was wanting them to be. Uh, musically speaking, well, you know, I'm a big John Lennon guy and I, that would have been something that would have been really interesting. You know, I mean, the thing with those Beatle guys is that they were they were so curious on the electronic side of things, you know, that I knew that I, I you know, with some of these characters I I could have contributed something interesting. But I have to tell you, you know, when I think about it, there's really not any I I feel like I've I've accomplished so much of what I set out to do that um you know, as, as far as session wise, man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I kind of ran the gamut, you know, I was really fortunate. And, uh, I don't feel like I'm missing something. Let's put it that way. I mean, I could think about it and maybe come up with somebody, but I really did get to work with like so many of the people I could have imagined wanting to work with, you know, which I'm really grateful for. So, uh, Yeah, no, my bucket list. I got to do it, man. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't even know I was going to be able to 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 get where I got. You know, I couldn't have even imagined it. You know, so so anyway. Wow, record biz, man. Yeah, it's been fascinating. Still here. (laughs) Thank you so much
2: for telling us all the stories and for sharing that. And and,
0: pleasure, man.
2: You know, thank you for all the great music you've been a part of.
0: Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. you know, I'm glad to have the chance to do it, man. You know, as you get a little older, you get more grateful, you know, for, for you know, you can kind of see a little of it from a different perspective. It's like, wow, did I pull this shit off, you know? And, uh...
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net. Buying everything is on the one, the first guy to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out